Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Hi everyone, welcome to CRISPR Cuts. As you know, we try to bring you the latest trends in CRISPR and genome engineering through our podcast. However, presently the new thing in everyone's lives is the COVID-19 pandemic. Most of us are working from home and adjusting to this new normal. But we know it is difficult, especially for scientists whose daily routine is to work in the lab and now they have to transition to a work from home environment. So in this episode, we are going to do something different. We will have a CRISPR office hour session, a platform to come together and discuss the impact of COVID-19 on science and scientists. Kevin Holden, Head of Science at Synthago, and Aditya Vempati, VP of Marketing at Synthago, will host this session. And our special guest is Hamid Kanadan, CEO of the Linus Group. I hope you all enjoy this episode and feel supported by the scientific community despite being confined to your homes right now. So let's get started. Good morning, everybody. We're all actually working from home, if you will, but more likely in reality, we're trying to work from home through a crisis, a pandemic. So my name is Kevin Holden. I'm the head of science at Synthago. So hopefully this will be the first of many of these weekly chats we can do We'd like to engage you, the scientific community, and people working specifically either in genome engineering or maybe you're working in a different area of science. You're just interested to talk to us and let us keep you company through this time. So, Hamid? Awesome. Thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Hamid Ganadan. I'm the founder and CEO of the strategy and insights firm Linus, and we are focused on the life science and health and wellness industry, and we provide insights and strategy and innovation for this industry. And I'm delighted to be here with our friends at Synthago and to participate in this CRISPR office hours. I'm very passionate about science and looking forward to seeing what I can provide to help everybody get through this time. Great, thank you, Kevin Amit. And uh, let me introduce myself. My name is Aditya Vempati, and I'm the VP of Marketing at Synthago. One of the biggest reasons why I believe in the scientific community is just the power to invoke change, the power to really push humanity forward. And while we are in a pandemic, I feel this is one of those moments where we can get together as a community, as humans, and really make a difference. So as we're going through this, there's actually some interesting things that Hamid and his team have done in this pandemic to just really understand the community, what we're going through, and how we can support one another. Do you want to take a moment to start off with that, Hamid? Sure. I'll just very quickly tee it up. So as all of these stay-at-home guidances and shelter-in-place guidances were coming out in the early half toward the end of March, my team decided to deploy a global survey about what's happening and how the life science community is feeling. And so I'm here with the the initial results of that to share with your attendees and, and going forward. And Kevin is going to ask me some questions about it. And we're just going to share some of the key findings with all of you. And we'll go from there. Great. Yeah. Actually, Hamid, I, I did have a question actually first about Linus, the company. Why did you call it Linus? <laughs> Thanks for asking. So I'm the founder of Linus and the company is almost 20, uh, it's 24 years old. 
And I was looking to pay homage to one of the great scientists that had influenced me in my life, who was Linus Pauling. And there's a couple of reasons why he really stood out to me as somebody who was really unique, is that he is the only scientist to win two unshared Nobel Prizes, one for his work in chemistry, and then the other one, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for his anti-nuclear proliferation work. And also what's unique about him is that he won the Nobel Prize in chemistry for a body of work that he had done, not for a specific experiment. And so he really struck me as somebody who was a Renaissance person. And so I wanted to pay all my loose homage to Linus Pauling. And so, and the name Linus is easy to say, it's simple, and I really liked it. And so Linus it is. I was hoping there might be a Charlie Brown reference in there, but I guess not. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny you say that. When I was doing research on the name, it did invoke a lot of Linus Van Pelt, I think is the name of the Charlie Brown character. And what I found is I didn't know who this character was. So I had to watch a whole bunch of Charlie Brown to figure out if this is a good person or not. And I found him to be great. He's a, he's a wonderful person. And when people make that connection with a Charlie Brown, they actually remember the name of the company more. And even if they've never heard of us, they think that they've heard of us. So I thought it was all positive that that connection exists. And even though that wasn't the original intention or the inspiration, I'm, I'm all very happy about it. <laughs> well, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. So I would say that probably a lot of our audience are here. Most of them, I would assume, are working from home and they're not in the lab right now. And so many of them actually will be genome engineers who are utilizing CRISPR for a bunch of different reasons in their research. Can you maybe tell us what inspired you to, to do this poll specifically now that we're entering this pandemic? Yeah, so my colleague and president, Kristen Apple, and I were actually on March 12th on our way to a meeting here in Boulder, and we received a call from the person with whom we were going to meet, and that person decided to cancel the meeting. And within a matter of minutes, many of our meetings got canceled. And so we decided that we needed to find out what's happening within the life science community and to provide this information for the community, for all sides of the community, so that, so that we can all understand and anticipate what's happening. And more importantly, for people not to make decisions based on panic or anecdote. And so we wanted to provide at least some grounding on what's going on and what to expect so that decisions get made and better decisions get made and maybe even opportunities arise out of this pandemic. That was the original impetus behind it. And we moved really quickly. So I mentioned we had this experience on March 12th. We launched the survey on March 13th and we had an initial baseline. So March 13th was a Friday and we had an initial baseline by the end of the day that Monday. And then we've taken two time points since then and we're going to publish the next major time point at the end of next week. So we're starting to look at how this thing is progressing within the life science community and what the community is doing. That's great. Maybe you want to get started and start talking about the work that you've done. So we were able to gather just over a thousand respondents for what we're calling the baseline study. Almost two thirds of the respondents were academics or work in a university. And then the remainder work in a variety of different institutions, many of them private business like pharma biotech and CROs and manufacturers of other products. How did you actually interact with these people? How did you reach out yeah. to them? Yeah, so we actually, because we're an insights firm, we actually have a fairly large database of scientists who have answered our surveys before and have opted in to participate in future studies. But we have several of our clients that we also called and told 
that we're doing this. And they said, you know what, this sounds like a great idea. I would like to support this, or we would like to support this. And so they actually sent a note on our behalf to their population, to their contact database or customers as well. And it was other than just general reciprocity, we're not sharing the the individual data with any of these clients. We're just sharing it in aggregate. And so several other of our clients also participated in this and are sending people to the survey as well. I see. Would you say that the breakdown you see here is is typical of your database or is it just kind of that's the response you got this time? It's more or less typical. We We actually, our database is a little bit more balanced between industry and academia. And I'll share a little bit as to why we think that this was weighted a little bit more toward academia and a little less toward industry than our database itself. It's because we're actually seeing that there's a massive effort by pharma and biotech and also the contract research organizations to really move work forward. And so many of them have have been granted emergency use exemption from shelter in place. And so there are folks that are working around the clock on this. We have a client, Charles River Labs, and they're really busy and they're working on this and and their contract research organization. They're one of the big global ones. So I think that those people are just really, really busy. And so there was, they're a little bit underrepresented in this. What is the percentage of academics to industry in the end of 1011? So the percentage of the academics, so 68% of the thousand are academics. And then other than government research and government clinical testing, the remainder are in some sort of a, of an industry. And so I would say about 29% are in the industry. Cool. Another question we actually had was, how can I participate in this survey? Awesome question. Thank you for asking. So we're actually going to publish a link to the folks that registered for this webinar as well. And I just want to say, I would appreciate all of you to participate in this. It doesn't matter whether if you're an academic or not, it doesn't matter where you belong. We want to hear from the industry and we want to be as broad and exclusive as possible. So we're going to publish a link to take this survey. The survey is going to continue to be open for at least another month. We're going to take at least two more time points, data collections, so that we can see how this is progressing. So another question that we asked, and and this is a key one, is what do you do? So other than where do you work, what do you do? And so what is your main function? And so we see that 75% are engaged in R&D, 10% are engaged, they're they're called other, and these are folks who are either non-R&D professors or they work in healthcare or different aspects of medicine, and then a variety of different administrative, general, and executive and management roles. R&D diagnostics and and manufacturing are folks that we believe or or have told us in the survey that they really require a specialized facility to be able to do their work. So obviously, many researchers require a lab bench and wet lab settings. Folks in diagnostics, same thing. QC, they require access to instrumentation. Manufacturing requires specialized facilities. And so as we go through the survey and as we started to look at who is being disrupted and what disruption looks like, we had to take this into account that people don't have access to their facilities. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how that affects the community in general. And what's really interesting is that we found actually that the disruption due to this pandemic is really taking on four phases. And there's an initial shock of what's happening and what are we going to do. And then we're going to move into a phase which we've named the golden interim. This is a time where one can be in limbo. But we're finding that as the infection peaks and hopefully starts to go down, what the community is doing and how they're being productive. 
then there's going to be a moment of transition back to the institutions. Now, this transition back is going to create a surge of activities, and we can talk about that in a bit. And then that surge is going to slowly start to come down into a period which we're calling the new normal. So the new normal is not going to be the same as where March 11th or March 10th, which was the last time you might have been in the lab. There's going to be a little bit of a different dynamics once this whole thing walks through. Where would you say we are right now? Yeah, great question. We believe that we're just passing the trough of the initial shock, and we're about to go into this golden interim time. It's generally still in the shock, but we're coming out of that. And the reason why I say that, Kevin, is because number one, we're measuring productivity and productivity is really taking a precipitous dive. When we're asking people what they're caring about right now, we know what they care about is their own safety, their family's safety. Am I going to have enough food? Am I in danger in any way? They're not really focusing on scientific progress as much. And so what we're seeing is that now they're coming out of that a little bit. And, you know, again, in the last time point survey that we took, which was this past Wednesday, People are starting to say that they're feeling a sense of calm and introspection now. And that's what we believe is going to be the starting point in that golden interim time. That's great. So you talked a little bit about the initial shock and what happened there. Did you happen to ask any questions directly about of your respondents? Have you been told to specifically work from home or has your laboratory activities closed down? Did you get a sense of what percentage of the industry is actually participating in kind of a a laboratory shutdown? Yeah, so we have asked that question, and and I believe 57%, this is from memory, 57% at the time had said that they're being impacted somewhat. And 18% at the time said that they had no ability to do work, which was basically because they had no connection to their specialized facilities. That number has since increased from the initial baseline, and that more of the organizations have been specifically and explicitly told to work from home or their their institutions have been shut down. We believe that that number is in the 60 percentile, 60th percentile right now. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I know at least from interacting with some of Synthigo's customers and our friends, we found that there are some groups that are still trying to do critical work, Synthigo included, we're one of them. And we've been working with you know lots of different groups to try actually work on, on novel types of research for COVID-19. We can get into that a little bit later, sure. but Maybe you want to tell us a little bit about the golden interim period and what that actually means. Absolutely. So this is a time where people are essentially ripped away from business as usual because of this pandemic. So it could be a variety of reasons. One is because you know they don't have access to their facility, but from one reason or another, they've had to disrupt what was business as usual. And so what a lot of our respondents are reporting back is that they're planning on engaging in a lot of writing that manuscript that just takes a long time to write because of everything else that's happening is now, you know, can be a primary focus of a lot of scientists. Many of them talked about analyzing data, you know, in the past. And so they have backlog of data and they're looking to doing analysis. Training algorithms is another way that people are focusing in on their time. So, and another aspect of what's happening in this golden interim time is really stepping back and rethinking creatively about their research project or new research questions or new methodologies, that they're really looking at how to really expand their research, literature searches, reading other colleagues' papers, all of the things that really are, in some ways, the most delicious and enjoyable aspects of doing science, 
But because of the daily activities of going to committee meetings or being disrupted by other aspects, not being there is really giving a lot of scientists time to become introspective and think and, and be expansive. And so that's why we're calling it the golden interim. That it's not like a limbo or a purgatory interim. It's actually a golden interim. And people are really going to try to make the best out of it. I guess it's also the golden age of learning how to use uh, Zoom and <laughs> internet, co- internet conferencing. That. Yeah, that's a, yeah, There is absolutely that going on too. So yeah, that's the golden interim period. When we asked our respondents how long they think that this period is going to last, 55% of our respondents are really hunkering down to saying somewhere between three and six months which is really, a, I mean, that, that's a big time period. But also, if you, if you really put it into context, into the academic context, six months takes us all the way to about August. And so three months would be somewhere around June timeframe, end of May, June timeframe. And that's where people are mentally preparing themselves for wanting to spend this time. According to you, how many months will have to pass to enter the new normal phase? What are the negative consequences in case you get used to working from home? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So if the golden interim time or the time that this pandemic is disrupting people's ability to do business as usual work is somewhere between three and six months, that transition period is going to be fairly rapid. But then there's going to be a long tail of once things get back to normal productivity, And we actually believe that normal productivity is going to be a little bit higher than what it was before because people have had this time to step away and think and become introspective and get rid of their backlog. But the transition time is going to be a time of a huge amount of fervor and the surge of productivity that's going to happen because people are going to be let in back into their facilities and to be able to ramp back up. So there's going to be a surge of activity then. And there's going to be a flood of manuscripts that are going to be going to the publishers and informatics tools with with algorithms that are going to be trained based on data. and, And so there's going to be a lot of fervor during that transition period. And that's going to have a long tail. As far as negative consequences for being far away, one of the most interesting that we learned, and this was actually a direct quote from one of our respondents, they said, you know, for every month that I'm away from my science, it's going to take me three to four months to ramp back up. And that's a big negative consequence. So there's going to be productivity, meaning that people are going to be working, but that's going to be really taking up that ramping back up to be able to resume their, their work moving forward. Cool. That's a nice, uh, I would say, summarization of how you're thinking through this. So one more question before we move on here. What characteristics of investigators suggest a greater resiliency amidst a public health crisis? Are there any elements of individual or institutions that might enable a faster progression through these phases, or is it predominantly environmental? That's a big question. I think part of our intention for doing this research and really trying to find out what's happening, it was in part to be able to inform the institutions on how to go back. One of the best things that individual researchers can do once the initial shock is over and once you know you're safe, you know your family's safe, you know your coworkers are safe, you figured out Zoom and have your, the pandemic mullet all well set up. I think that's a time when not to forget that transition period and make a really explicit plan for that transition whenever it happens. So that not only are you efficient, but you're strategic about how you're going back and what are the decisions, you know, any, any key decision 
that you need to make, make it before that transition happens. So that once the institutions open back up, that you can get into full execution mode and that you don't have to worry as much about, okay, now we have to make the critical decisions, make the critical decisions beforehand. That's the number one advice that we're hearing and that what we're giving. The other one is just during the initial shock. I mean, if somebody's in shock, don't make any drastic decisions then either. Just make sure that you're comfortable and you're okay and then moving forward. And then the last thing is really, as far as institutions, to really think about what that transition is going to look like. There's going to have to be cleanup because maybe some people left in a hurry. And so to go back to that kind of a, of a situation and really allow your research community to come back in a well-executed manner. And that's going to be different from institution to institution. I mean, speaking of transitions or decisions, did you get any inclination from any of your respondents or people you just talked to? Maybe their lab didn't close down or maybe what they've decided to do instead of going back home from the lab and, and focusing on things like writing, analysis, planning, mm-hmm. um, that they actually transitioned and pivoted their research into trying to help fight this pandemic. I know we've definitely encountered quite a few of our collaborators and customers who are, who are trying to do this now. We've They've asked us to help them. And as a company, we've reached out to many individuals and other companies. We have an active effort to do this, also to see how we can all put our minds together during this time. Did you get any sense of that from anybody that you, that you talked to? Or if not, can you, can you speak about it? Yeah, so we can tell you that both through this research as well as through communications with a lot of our clients, that there's an active effort to switch as much of the efforts of companies in order to fighting this pandemic, whether it's development of new diagnostics, whether it's development of new research capabilities, or doing epidemiology studies, or correlative studies, or even just looking at developing therapeutics and vaccines. So I'll say that research areas that have agency or credibility into that arena are making an effort to switch to the extent that they can. So for example, if a company is, has a diagnostics platform, they're looking at whether that can be used in order to detect a novel coronavirus or even other viruses. I have a client, I have a, actually a connection with a company who does environmental detection of biological material like molds and things like that. And they're actually actively looking to see if they can, through air quality, see whether they can detect things like viruses. And that's very much in the act. So that's just an example or an anecdote of what you're talking about. I don't think that the community is misusing the ability to apply for the emergency use exception to keep their labs open and then just go about doing their own research, whatever it was. I think people are genuinely focusing on the coronavirus if they can. Would home COVID testing be possible with CRISPR? Detector protocol, for instance. You want to take that one, Kevin? Yeah, I, I think it definitely could. So as most of you are probably aware, there's been, at least in, in the CRISPR world, there's been a couple of groups that have developed or reported on different testing methods for testing SARS-CoV-2. And so, you know, one of those is the detector method that you mentioned that was developed by Mammoth Biosciences, our friends over there. And then there was the, there's also the Sherlock-based protocol developed by uh, Feng Zhang and Jonathan and Omar at MIT. And so one of those is based on a, a CAS-12 approach, right? The detector one's based on a CAS-13 approach directly going after the RNA. Yeah, so, you know, I think what they've shown in both of those technologies is that, you know, you've got basically like a field deployable 
analysis technology. And so you can take a relatively unpure sample from a, a patient and you can then relatively quickly get an, an answer. So those techniques do require some steps where you have to do an amplification. But I, I know that both groups are, are likely working on the ability to try to do this test either away from a laboratory, like I mentioned, field deployable. I think maybe for the, the CAS-13 test, the Sherlock one is a little easier. But to answer your question, I think those groups, they're still working on testing those assays with patient samples. And until they get an approval, it really remains to be seen. But I think it's definitely possible. There's actually a really cool question that came in that I think relates to this. It's like a good tangent segue. I was sent in via email. Folks, you can do that also as well after you register. I'm Maria Luna Perciado, and I'm a PhD student at University of Sheffield. As a consequence of COVID-19, universities have been shut down until further notice, with an exception for labs involved in fighting COVID-19. There are many PhD students whose work is strictly lab-dependent and now might be affected by this necessary lab closure. Considering this might affect the completion of PhD students' thesis or work, I'm wondering, what will be the impact on career of those students? In some cases, there are strict deadlines which will not be postponed due to the lack of further fundings. Is this going to compromise the appreciation of work of these unfortunate students? I'll share one, one aspect of our research. I mean, we asked about funding, and funding was definitely, I think, number three in people's concerns about how this pandemic was going to be shaped. And it all depends on country and the different laws and the rules and the policies around the different granting agencies. I can just comment based on what we're seeing with respect to how the United States government is reacting toward economic stimuli. Our hope is that there's going to be enough of that same sentiment to go into scientific research and to you know, extend grants and continue to, to provide funds going into the different aspects of the sciences. I mean, if this isn't science's moment, as it were, or it's, its finest hour, then I don't know that and, you know, when that might be. And so we're hopeful that lawmakers are focusing on this and, and are extending those grants. But I mean, as this information is really just coming into focus, there's no way to tell. And it, it is an unfortunate situation. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would hope compassion really becomes the, the rule of law here. I think we're seeing in a lot of societies and a lot of cultures, right? You're in, in Sheffield. I know in the UK, the government is providing a salary for people who are furloughed, 80% or something. You know, I know here in California, they've basically told people to stop evictions and, and things like this. So I hope just kind of larger scale view of things that um, these granting agencies will realize what's happening and, and be more compassionate about their deadlines with the funding. So I hope that works out for you, for you personally. <laughs> cool. So I think as we go through this and we have tackled it as a community and we're thinking through and having empathy, as you said, Kevin, and compassion for each other, I think it's going to be really critical to make sure that these deadlines, they can be extended. And I think everyone looks at it from that lens. So that being said, we have one more question. In light of FDA easing up on regulatory guidelines for COVID diagnostic testing, how do you foresee permanent changes in their approval process for diagnostics and therapeutics? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to have to just based on the fact that like what the world really needs right now is consistent and a volume of tests. So I think what's become evident is based on how contagious, you know, the virus is really the best way is to see how many people you can test, determine 
if people have become immune. We still don't really know if people, once they are immune, if they are not likely to get reinfected again. So that's something to think about. But we've heard about governments not having enough access to enough tests. We've heard about people paying tons of money because they have privilege to get a test when there are healthcare workers that can't get a test. So really what we need to see is just like a larger amount of tests in the marketplace. Now, obviously, like these have to be vetted and the approval processes for these things are typically quite long and for good reason, because they need to be accurate. And so I think this is going to just be like an effort. It's whether it's going to be a manufacturing effort or it's going to have to take a greater effort and a greater number of people involved in in those organizations and institutions that are responsible for validating these tests. So whether it's scientists doing secondary validations on pre-existing tests in order to qualify their own and then prove that data, it could be that. But yeah, to answer your question, I think it has to change. This is one of the things we're going to see that's going to change. You know, I'll only add that if you think about the, you know, regulatory bodies like the FDA, I mean, they play a critical role, right? Their role is to make sure that there's safety and efficacy in everything that touches the public. And so whether they're going about and whether they have kept up with the speed of innovation to change their, their the way that they do that testing and policies, that's, I think that this is really enforcing everyone or, or really pushing them to change things permanently without foregoing quality, right? That's the, that's the hardest part is the best process for whatever you have is the fastest point to get from A to B without introducing risk or while minimizing risk. And that minimizing risk part is what's been creating a lot of backlog and, and, and creating a lot of aspects. And so how might they be able to do this? Uh, my hope is that there's folks at the FDA as well as academics who are actually looking and doing a longitudinal studies around what's happening to risk during times like this. And so then they can make a better prediction of saying, well, maybe, maybe a lot of our processes were unnecessary or we can change them or evolve them in a certain way because look what happened during this pandemic. And that could be a silver lining in all of this if they're actually looking at studying it as well at the same time as this happening. Would you say based on your graph, maybe we can just go back to it real quick, the very last section, would you say that kind of fits in in general into the new normal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the new normal is really going to, you know, there's going to be there's going to be fairly big winners and losers that come out of this. And so part of this is going to be, you know, and, and this is why we're calling it a new normal and not the old normals, because not only will habits have changed and how we're also going to work differently, but also processes and policies will have changed as well. And not to make light of the situation, but if you recall during the oil shortage about a decade ago, all the airlines instituted a baggage fee policy because they were like, well, you know, we're going to have to charge for baggage because fuel is more expensive. But once the cost of oil went back down, that surcharge just stayed. That's a new normal. It's never going to go back to the old normal. And so I think that there's going to be a lot that we can anticipate from policy as well as just processes and science in general. Like I'm actually looking at how the publishing industry is changing, how much bioinformatics is going to change as a result of this time, but also just quality control. One of the things that we learned is that in the golden interim, scientists are planning on data sharing a lot more. And so collaborations are going to come out of this in new ways. That's generally a very good thing, but we're hopeful that the scientific community can maintain the quality control on the data because as we're sharing data sets with one another, we don't have a standardized way of making sure that the metadata also are past muster. And so the quality control on on what's coming during that transition period in the new normal is is a question as to how the scientific community is going to handle that. I think what you said is a really critical point in terms of how scientists now are collaborating more. We're just seeing it every day 
like whether you're on Twitter or you're just following press releases, it's really important. Also, the amount of preprints that are coming out. So yeah, thanks for speaking to that. I think it's a really yeah. critical point. So we had a lot of conversation, I think, in the last uh, 50 so minutes, and we're over time. But that being said, I do want to ask one question to both of our panelists here that I think is really critical for the community and wrap it up from there. So this one, I want to ask both of you, what do you think is the biggest challenge for the scientific community next three to six months? If you guys could, you know, maybe Kevin, starting with you, take about 30 seconds to answer that and Hamid chime in afterwards. I think this is something a lot of people on the line want to know. I think it's going to be twofold. I think one is actually figuring out like if they can... So we could talk about the academic world and, and also the biotechnology industry world. I think it's going to be figuring out what's really essential for them to do. So like kind of long-term, hopefully everyone's frozen down cells they need to take care of. But I, I think it's going to go into like, you know, do we institute kind of shift work in the lab so we can keep social distancing from scientists? That's one part of it. And I, I think the other big challenge people are going to face because there's some uncertainty about when we all go back to work for, for real is what do our plans look like on the other side? So are we going to try and make up for lost time and double our output? Or do we just kind of say, okay, this was like an extended summer, early summer vacation holiday, and then we'll continue on. I think it depends if you're in academia industry, which, which of those you might be looking at. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Kevin. I think there's a couple more things that I'll just share a little bit of color is that that golden interim time, I think has an expiration date on it meaning that the productivity is going to start to decline again if that time is elongated beyond what the scientific community is willing to accept right now because there's going to be an atrophy and there's going to be a lack of more things to do. So I've already submitted a bunch of manuscripts. I've already written my grants. I've already you know, analyzed all the data I had my hands on. Now I'm just frustrated and pessimistic and not feeling like I can continue. And now I'm scared again. And so that, that, that golden interim might dip back down again if it's, if it's much longer than what people are anticipating. And that's a worry as people are going back into this. And then the next thing that I'll say is that I think, and there's been some companies that have already started on this where there's abilities to remote control lab work. And so while it's still not 100% attendant free, there's a lot more I think that's gonna be coming out in the new normal where people are gonna be setting that up a little bit more, where they're basically setting up remote lab cells. And so then they can control them much more. And so there's, I think that there's going to be more of an appetite, a long-term investment appetite in things like IT infrastructure and more remote operation and automation and things like that. And so, and I think the investment community is going to want to put more money behind that so that they're not seeing as deep of a disruption. I don't know how long lasting that's going to be, but it's certainly something that would make sense for the industry to put investment behind. So I want to take a moment and say thank you, Kevin and Amid, for joining us and everybody else that was on the line and registered and sent in questions. We really feel like as a company, as individuals and members of the scientific community that together we'll be able to tackle this and answer the questions versus going at it individually. And we want to make sure to let everybody know that we aim to have anybody that wants to be a host join this broadcast. We're welcoming that. And again, these are CRISPR office hours for achieving as casual as possible, but give relevant information and make it as interactive as possible. So with that, I want to say thank you for joining. Thank you again, Kevin Hamid. Thank you. Thanks to DJ. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And I got to say, you guys, this is awesome that you guys are doing this. So I appreciated the opportunity to speak to your team and to address the communities. So wonderfully doing this. Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. 
I invite you to check out the Synthago blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. Please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crispercuts at synthago.com. CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthago. Produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.